Hello, and welcome to this, the latest episode of Pulp Today. Uh, haven't recorded one in a while. I'm glad that I'm getting back to it now. This young lady, Elvira, has been keeping me a little busy, as have uh, other concerns like, you know, pandemics and whatnot. But I am back at it now, and I hope to be recording some more new episodes coming up soon. Uh, today, writers have a lot of grudges. <laughs> so we'll be talking about some uh, some old grudges today. But uh, one, of the, one of the best things about having been the son of a prolific Pulp Fiction writer was his friends, his social group. One of his best friends was a gentleman named Robert Block, one of the smartest, funniest men I ever had the privilege to meet and become friends with. Uh, you may know him uh, for a bunch of reasons. He wrote some pretty great episodes of Star Trek. My father showed me a letter once that I think led to the uh, Cat's Paw episode of Star Trek, where Block said that he had written a Halloween episode for them so incredibly insane that there was no way in hell they were ever going to shoot it. And shoot it, they did. Anyway, I'm referring, of course, to Robert Block, the author of Psycho, famously turned into a film by Alfred Hitchcock, who bought the book from him through a cutout so that uh, Block would agree to be paid far less than he would have had he known that it was Alfred Hitchcock buying the book. Grudges, we all have them. Anyway, Block was a lovely guy, passed away. I want to say 20, 25 years ago now. The book is a revelation. Even if you've seen the movie a hundred times, it's a pretty great book. I feel like the screenwriter of the movie has tried to take more credit for what's in that movie than, than perhaps he's due because so much of what makes the movie indelible is in the book, including the character of Norman Bates. I, I find the changes made to Norman Bates to be a little bit of a giveaway. I'm going to read the entire first chapter, and uh, you might see what I mean. Norman Bates is described in a certain physical way that uh, Alfred Hitchcock might have found uncomfortably close to home, and therefore Norman Bates becomes a young, skinny man. I'd also like to say that, uh, you know, spoiler alert, the, there's a central twist to Psycho, that has led to a giant societal change, really. Once upon a time, you used to wander into a movie theater whenever you felt like it. And maybe you'd see a movie from the beginning, maybe you wouldn't. But even when I was a kid, this was pretty much the case. And Psycho, because of its giant twist at the end, was one of the first movies that, no, you got to show up when it starts and leave when it's over, and please don't tell anybody the twist. The twist, of course, which you all know, or you can stop listening right now, is that the murders in the film are not committed by Norman Bates' mother. Norman Bates' mother is a figment of his imagination, and he puts on her dress and commits murder. I've read that Hitchcock considered that the book cheated uh, because it's a book. It can describe Norman Bates' mother doing and saying any number of things, which you then later realize were all in the head of uh, the protagonist. I would say Hitchcock cheated just as much because... Anthony Perkins does not do the voice of mother. It's a different actor, actress. 
So that's a little bit of a cheat too. But I'm going to read the first chapter and the, to me, the thing to notice in the first chapter, knowing what's coming, is how many times Robert Block comes out and tells you she's not real, she's a figment of his imagination. Listen closely and you'll hear a dozen clues that mother exists only in the mind of Norman Bates. Here we go. One. Norman Bates heard the noise and a shock went through him. It sounded as though somebody was tapping on the window pane. He looked up hastily, half prepared to rise, and the book slid from his hands to his ample lap. Then he realized that the sound was merely rain, late afternoon rain, striking the parlor window. Norman hadn't noticed the coming of the rain, nor the twilight. But it was quite dim here in the parlor now, and he reached over to switch on the lamp before resuming his reading. It was one of those old-fashioned table lamps, the kind with the ornate glass shade and the crystal fringe. Mother had had it ever since he could remember, and she refused to get rid of it. Norman didn't really object. He had lived in this house for all of the forty years of his life, and there was something quite pleasant and reassuring about being surrounded by familiar things. Here, everything was orderly and ordained. It was only there, outside, that the changes took place. And most of those changes held a potential threat. Suppose he had spent the afternoon walking, for example. He might have been off on some lonely side road or even back in the swamps when the rain came. And then what? He'd be soaked to the skin, forced to stumble along home in the dark. You could catch your death of cold that way. And besides, who wanted to be out in the dark? It was much nicer here in the parlor, under the lamp, with a good book for company. The light shone down on his plump face, reflected from his rimless glasses, bathed the pinkness of his scalp beneath the thinning, sandy hair as he bent his head again to resume reading. It was a really fascinating book. No wonder he hadn't noticed how fast the time had passed. It was The Realm of the Incas by Victor W. von Hagen, and Norman had never before encountered such a wealth of curious information. For example, this description of the Cachua, or Victory Dance, where the warriors formed a great circle, moving and writhing like a snake. He read, The drumbeat for this was usually performed on what had been the body of an enemy. The skin had been flayed and the belly stretched to form a drum, and the whole body acted as a sound box while the throbbings came out of the open mouth. Grotesque, but effective. Norman smiled, then allowed himself the luxury of a comfortable shiver. Grotesque, but effective. It certainly must have been. Imagine flaying a man alive properly, and then stretching his belly to use it as a drum. How did they actually go about doing that, curing and preserving the flesh of the corpse to prevent decay? For that matter, what kind of mentality did it take to conceive of such an idea in the first place? It wasn't the most appetizing notion in the world, but when Norman half-closed his eyes, he could almost see the scene. This throng of painted naked warriors wriggling and swaying in unison under a sun-drenched savage sky, and the old crone crouching before them throbbing out a relentless rhythm on the swollen, distended belly of a cadaver. The contorted mouth of the corpse would be forced open, probably fixed in a gaping grimace by clamps of bone, and from it the sound emerged. Beating from the belly, rising through the shrunken inner orifice, forced up through the withered windpipe, to emerge amplified and in full force from the dead throat. For a moment, Norman could almost hear it. 
and then he remembered that rain has its rhythm too and footsteps. Actually, he was aware of the footsteps without even hearing them. Long familiarity aided his senses whenever Mother came into the room. He didn't even have to look up to know she was there. In fact, he didn't look up. He pretended to continue his reading instead. Mother had been sleeping in her room, and he knew how crabby she could get when just awakened, so it was best to keep quiet and hope that she wasn't in one of her bad moods. Norman, do you know what time it is? He sighed and closed the book. He could tell now that she was going to be difficult. The very question was a challenge. Mother had to pass the grandfather clock in the hall in order to come in here, and she could easily see what time it was. Still no sense making an issue of it. Norman glanced down at his wristwatch, then smiled. A little after five, he said. I actually didn't realize it was so late. I've been reading. Don't you think I have eyes? I can see what you've been doing. She was over at the window now, staring out at the rain. And I can see what you haven't been doing, too. Why didn't you turn the sign on when it got dark, and why aren't you up at the office where you belong? Well, it started to rain so hard, and I didn't expect there'd be any traffic in this kind of weather. Nonsense. That's just the time you're likely to get some business. Lots of folks don't care to keep driving when it's raining. But it isn't likely anybody would be coming this way. Everyone takes the new highway. Norman heard the bitterness creeping into his voice, felt it welling up into his throat until he could taste it, and tried to hold it back, but too late now. He had to vomit it out. I told you how it would be at the time, when we got that advance tip that they were moving the highway. You could have sold the motel then, before there was a public announcement about the new road coming through. We could have bought all kinds of lands over there for a song closer to Fairville, too. We have a new motel, a new house, made some money. But you wouldn't listen. You never listen to me, do you? It's always what you want and what you think. You make me sick. Do I, boy? Mother's voice was deceptively gentle, but that didn't fool Norman. Not when she called him boy. Forty years old and she called him boy. That's how she treated him, too, which made it worse. If only he didn't have to listen. But he did. He knew he had to. He always had to listen. Do I, boy? She repeated even more softly. I make you sick, eh? Well, I think not. No, boy, I don't make you sick. You make yourself sick. That's the real reason you're still sitting over here on this side road, isn't it, Norman? Because the truth is that you haven't any gumption. Never had any gumption, did you, boy? Never had the gumption to leave home. Never had the gumption to go out and get yourself a job or join the army or even find yourself a girl. You wouldn't let me. That's right, Norman. I wouldn't let you. But if you were half a man, you'd have gone your own way. He wanted to shout out at her that she was wrong, but he couldn't, because the things she was saying were the things he had told himself over and over again all through the years. It was true. She'd always lain down the law to him, but that didn't mean he always had to obey. Mothers sometimes were overly possessive, but not all children allowed themselves to be possessed. There had been other widows... Other only sons, and not all of them became enmeshed in this sort of relationship. It was really his fault as much as hers, because he didn't have any gumption. You could have insisted, you know, she was saying. 
Suppose you'd gone out and found us a new location, then put the place here up for sale. But no, all you did was whine, and I know why. You never fooled me for an instant. It's because you really didn't want to move. You've never wanted to leave this place, and you never will now, ever. You can't leave, can you? Any more than you can grow up. He couldn't look at her. Not when she said things like that. He couldn't. And there was nowhere else for him to look, either the beaded lamp, the heavy old overstuffed furniture, all the familiar objects in the room suddenly become hateful, just because of long familiarity, like the furnishings of a prison cell. He stared out of the window, but that was no good either. Out there was the wind and the rain and the darkness. He knew there was no escape for him out there, no escape anywhere. From the voice that throbbed, the voice that drummed into his ears, like that of the Inca corpse in the book, the drum of the dead. He clutched at the book now and tried to focus his eyes on it again, maybe if he ignored her and pretended to be calm. But it didn't work. Look at yourself, she was saying, the drum going boom, 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 and the sound reverberating from the mangled mouth. I know why you didn't bother to switch on the sign. I know why you haven't even gone up to open the office tonight. You didn't really forget. It's just that you don't want anyone to come. You hope they don't come. All right, he muttered. I admit it. I hate running a motel. I always have. It's more than that, boy. There it was again. Boy, 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 drumming away, out of the jaws of death. You hate people. Because really, you're afraid of them, aren't you? Always have been, ever since you were a little tyke. Rather snuggle up in a chair under the lamp and read. You did it thirty years ago, and you're still doing it now, hiding away under the covers of a book. There's a lot worse things I could be doing. You always told me that yourself. At least I never went out and got into trouble. Isn't it better to improve my mind? Improve your mind. <laughs> he could sense her standing behind him now, staring down. Call that improvement? You don't fool me, boy. Not for a minute. Never have. It isn't as if you were reading the Bible or even trying to get an education. I know the sort of thing you read. Trash and worse than trash. This happens to be a history of the Inca civilization. I'll just bet it is. And I'll just bet it's crammed full with nasty bits about those dirty savages like the one you had about the South Seas. Oh, you didn't think I knew about that one, did you? Hiding it up in your room the way you hid all the others, those filthy things you used to read. Psychology isn't filthy, mother. Psychology, he calls it. A lot you know about psychology. I'll never forget the time you talked so dirty to me. Never. To think that a son could come to his own mother and say such things. But I was only trying to explain something. It's what they call the Oedipus situation, and I thought if both of us could just look at the problem reasonably and try to understand it, maybe things would change for the better. Change, boy. Nothing's going to change. You can read all the books in the world and you'll still be the same. I don't need to listen to a lot of vile, obscene rigmarole to know what you are. Why, even an eight-year-old child could recognize it. They did, too. All your little playmates did, way back then. You are a mama's boy. That's what they called you, and that's what you were. Were, are, and always will be. A big, fat, overgrown mama's boy. It was deafening to him. The drumbeat of her words, the drumbeat in his own chest. The vileness in his mouth made him choke. In a moment, he'd have to cry. Norman shook his head to think that she could still do this to him, even now. But she could, and she was, and she would, over and over again, unless... Unless what? 
God, could she read his mind? I know what you're thinking, Norman. I know all about you, boy. More than you dream. But I know that, too. What you dream. You're thinking that you'd like to kill me, aren't you, Norman? But you can't. Because you haven't the gumption. I'm the one who has the strength. I've always had it. Enough for both of us. That's why you'll never get rid of me, even if you really wanted to. Of course, deep down you don't want to. You need me, boy. That's the truth, isn't it? Norman stood up slowly. He didn't dare trust himself to turn and face her. Not yet. He had to tell himself to be calm first. Be very, very calm. Don't think about what she's saying. Try to face up to it. Try to remember. She's an old woman and not quite right in the head. If you keep on listening to her this way, you'll end up not quite right in the head either. Tell her to go back to her room and lie down. That's where she belongs. And she'd better go back there fast, because if she doesn't, this time you're going to strangle her with her own silver cord. He started to swing around, his mouth working, framing the phrases when the buzzer sounded. That was the signal. It meant somebody had driven in. Up at the motel and was ringing for service. Without even bothering to look back, Norman walked into the hall, took his raincoat from the hangar, and went out into the darkness. And that, my friends, is the first chapter of Psycho, written by the master, Robert Block. Did you catch all of the times he told you Mother wasn't real? Her reading his mind, the fact that Norman never looks at her, the fact that when she's talking to him he says well these are just all of the things i tell myself uh it's all right there there's for you to notice it's 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 not a it's not a cheat it's actually all laid up for you the fact that he describes the inca beating a dead man's body as a drum and the sound coming out of his mouth and he compares his mother's words to the sound being beaten by somebody else out of a corpse I mean, that's pretty, that makes it pretty clear that Mrs. Bates might actually be a corpse with sound coming out of her. A couple of other things about Psycho. The movie's great. I'm a big fan of the movie. The Gus Van Zandt remake. When you remake something, it is probably a good idea, reboot, whatever. When you take on a franchise, even, know what it's about. Know what was the point. Why write Psycho? What is Psycho about? There's a scene in the Van Sant movie, one of his few modern touches, where uh, Vince Vaughn, as Norman Bates, is looking through the crack in the wall watching Marion Crane and Aish shower. The modern touch he adds is that Norman is masturbating. I gave up on the movie at that moment because... Gus Van Zandt doesn't know why he's making Psycho or why Psycho exists. Psycho is about sexual repression ultimately leading to madness and violence. If Norman Bates could masturbate, he would clean himself up, go to his room, and go to sleep. It is precisely because Norman has such a fraught relationship with sex, sees sex as evil and sexual feeling is evil, that he has to destroy the object of his lust. To add that touch, that quote-unquote modern touch, to Psycho is to demonstrate that you don't actually know what the story is about and that the story is about sexual repression. I would also point out, getting back to grudges, that 
in his shot-for-shot remake where everything was painstakingly recreated exactly as it was, uh, one thing that wasn't recreated was Robert Block's opening credits title, which was buried in the end credits of the movie for some reason. That angered me probably more than I can say and probably more than is rational. But uh, honor the people who create the things that you work on uh, when you are lucky enough to find yourself continuing or recreating the work of one of the masters tip your hat tip it with great respect and don't bury their name as deep as you possibly can in the end credits somewhere that's today's lesson and uh i hope you enjoyed the book uh i the copy i have is a a movie copy that i think i got at the uh the lovely uh paperback fair that we have out here once a year I think it's in Glendale these days, Eagle Rock, I can't remember. Anyway, thanks for joining me for this episode of Pulp Today. I promise next time I'll read something in which there is no related story about how I'm mad at people. <laughs> Thank you for listening. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>